This morning, I want to talk about the marvelously ordinary life. In way of introduction, I pray that you know, just up front, that your life, yes, your life, you, your life matters very deeply to God. God not only created you the way that you are, with your talents, interests, even idiosyncrasies. But God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die in your place so that you could be redeemed from sin and able to live the life that you've been given to the fullest. God is deeply interested in your life. You know, of all the stories, of all the characters recorded for us in the book of Acts, there is one character in particular that that I've always gravitated towards I've always connected with, I've always been interested in. And that is a a character by the name of Philip. Now, here's why I love Philip. Philip was not one of the original 12 apostles. He wasn't on the A-team. Not only that, we have like no record of Philip being present during Jesus' earthly ministry. Philip wasn't there to see the feeding of the 5,000 or Jesus walking on the water. He presumably came to faith probably years after Jesus' ascension to heaven. I mean, Philip is what you might call like the prototypical second generation believer. And yet, almost the entire story arc of his life in Christ is documented for us. Like there is no question that Philip lived a marvelous life. But the reason that his life has been written down, recorded in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for Christians to read, not just this morning, but down through the centuries, for us to consider. Yes, a marvelous life. But the reason it's recorded, documented for us, is how starkly ordinary it really is. How ordinary Philip's life, while marvelous, how ordinary his life is for anyone that would dare do the same, follow Jesus on a crazy journey of faith. Philip did live a marvelously ordinary life. Now, not to be confused, there was a Philip that was one of the 18 members. There was an apostle, Philip. This is not our man, our character. In fact, Philip is first introduced to us in the first several verses of Acts chapter 6. We read, that in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the twelve, being the apostles, summoned the multitude, the church, together, and they said it's not desirable, preferable, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, we need help. So seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, so that we can give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this saying pleased the whole church, the multitude. So they, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. First introduction of our main character. Now I mentioned it in the intro, but it bears repeating. Biblically, (laughs) we know absolutely nothing about Philip before this mention. We don't know anything about his his upbringing. We know he's Jewish. We have no idea uh, what his uh, economic status looked like, his religious upbringing, how how that worked. We don't really know anything other than he's introduced to us as already a believer, a follower of Jesus. But, that being said, there are some things that we can assume Whether it was on the day of Pentecost, when Peter boldly preached an amazing sermon and 3,000 souls were saved, or whether it was on some other occasion, there was a moment in time when Philip, he heard the gospel preached, the good news of Jesus, and something stirred in his heart. He ended up rejecting the religion of his fathers, this This works-based religion, experiencing God's grace. He repents of his sin. 
He surrenders his life to Jesus, accepting Jesus as his Messiah, as his Christ, as his Lord and Savior. Philip then immediately joined a local church. It's a good thing. The Jerusalem church was really the only church at that point, so it was a good place to start. And then you can imagine that as he's this young man's plugging in, he gets discipled. I like to think he's discipled you know, by one of the apostles, but maybe not. Maybe it was just another uh, elderly man, an older man within the church that kind of took him under his wing. And then as the process of time started to play itself out, Philip, this new believer, full of exuberance and excitement about the Lord, he just starts looking for practical ways that he can serve. Hey, I'm coming to this church. I just don't want to be a a consumer. I want to be a contributor. I want to give as much as I'm receiving. So he does. He just starts looking for needs, and he practically meets those needs. Like, it's with that in mind, you should note, and again, this is why I think Philip is so relatable, that his story, it really starts, it begins no different than than yours or mine. Again, Philip's not one of the original 12. The Bible doesn't indicate he has any type of unique pedigree. Philip doesn't have formal training. He's not like James or Jude, who were half-brothers with Jesus. You know, that kind of gave you some clout up front. Like, I grew up with the Messiah. This is not so with Philip. He's just a normal guy. No formal training, no seminary, didn't possess a degree in theology. And in fact, Philip, nowhere in the scriptures is even referred to as being an elder, a pastor. There's not a pastoral epistle written by Paul to Philip. We don't have any of his sermons, in fact recorded in in scripture see philip he just was living out again what you might just call an ordinary christian experience came to faith in jesus plugged into a local church started serving faithfully but what's interesting is over time luke who's the author of acts he tells us that because philip had come to demonstrate in the church community a good reputation among among his friends and peers and was known as being a man that was full of the Holy Spirit, that was full of wisdom. When this need arose that necessitated the apostles come to the church and say, guys, the church is growing, the needs are expounding, things are being neglected, that's not good. We can't do it all, we need some help. Choose out seven men. When that edict was, 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 was placed out there, when when the challenge was laid out, the church looking around, what happens? Seek out from among you seven men. And they're like, Philip. If Philip here, he's chosen to be a deacon. Now, if you desire to live the marvelously ordinary life, you should keep in mind that Philip, he was chosen for this new position for one simple reason. It was a role he was already filling. Like the church needed to appoint men, you know, to be designated doers. So they're looking around, man, we need some guys that are doing some things. And you know, a good place to maybe look would be the guys that are already doing some things. Might be a good place, right? We need some designated doers. We already got some doers. Philip happens to be one of them. He's already living this out, already fulfilling the role. So, hey, man, let's just give him the position. You see, Philip was chosen to be a deacon. Why? He was already a deacon. He was already serving. He was already filling the role. Like the first movement that you should take note of in Philip's marvelously ordinary life, when he goes from just being a member of the church to now actually possessing kind of a a measure of authority, it occurred because of his simple faithfulness. Faithfulness. Philip wasn't looking for a title to fulfill a role. He was fulfilling a role, and then the church came along and gave him a title. He was just being faithful, simple faithfulness. Philip was faithful over a little, so God decided to increase his plate. Now, the next time that we see Philip, it comes at at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Now, now it's likely, for some context, that Philip has been, been serving as a deacon for probably a number of years. He's a table waiter, taking care of the practical needs. When we read... At that time, or during this season, and this follows, you should note, the murder of one of Philip's close buddies, one of the other deacons, a guy named Stephen. 
We're told at that time, after Stephen's uh, martyrdom, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And so the believers there were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. These are some of the areas around Jerusalem. Everyone except the apostles. Moving a little forward, as for Saul, the man making havoc of the church, he entered every house, he dragged off men and women, was committing them to prison. Therefore, we're told that those who were scattered went everywhere, (laughs) but note, preaching the word. Then Philip, again our man, went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. With regards to the marvelously ordinary life, don't miss how this second movement in Philip's life arose. It was not a free choice. It was not something he was uh, planning. It wasn't a a calendar reminder, didn't didn't bring it to his attention. No, no. Instead, a a very difficult circumstance arose that was completely out of his control, persecution. And it was this that forced him to move. He didn't want to. He had his church home and community and role, but, but circumstances demanded it. He had to leave Jerusalem, and he ends up, we're told, in Samaria. You can imagine that life for Philip had been good up to this point in Jerusalem. I mean, he's part of the church. His ministry was fruitful. It was growing. He was excelling in his role as a deacon. And then without warning, his buddy Stephen, who had made it a habit to go down to the watering hole and share his faith with some of the Judaizers, he had ticked off the wrong crowd. He ends up being murdered. This man Saul starts making havoc of the church. Everyone has to scatter. Now Saul's intentions were evil, no doubt. But what resulted from this persecution ended up being really counterproductive to the intents of the enemy. You see, instead of squelching the gospel, this scattering of believers only increased its spread. A fire had been blazed, had been ignited, was burning brightly. They tried to snuff it out, but embers flew everywhere, set the region on fire. As we just read, this persecution forced not not just Philip, but, but everyone to scatter, and they preached the gospel. Philip going to Samaria, preaching Christ. You know, almost overnight, and without really any forcing of the issue, I mean, this was not part of his 10 year plan. Philip the deacon now finds himself Philip the preacher. Like the man who had been charged with waiting tables and cleaning toilets now finds himself cast into the mission field. And he was powerless over this choice. But he embraced his call. You know, as you seek to live out, again, the marvelously ordinary life, never forget that any event or circumstance that that might be out of your control. And there are many, aren't there? Even those events, those moments, those things remain very much in His. Yes, it might be out of your control. But it's not out of His control. And since this is the case, you can always trust, even in the difficult times, that whatever situation you might be facing, whatever difficulty you might be trying to endure, whatever obstacle that's in your way, As daunting, as challenging, as frustrating as it might be, you can trust, you can step back and say, you know, God, you're in control. Meaning that this is part of your will for my life. Like with everything that had happened in Philip's life, he could have been bitter. And you could have related to that to a degree. Like he could have been angry at God. His friend, one of his best friends had just been murdered. The church that he loved was under attack. Philip had been forced not just to leave his job, but his ministry and his home, and now he's in an unfamiliar city. He's in Samaria. And yet, this is what I love about Philip. Philip saw this poor turn of luck as being a potential opportunity. 
Like the moment he arrives in Samaria, we're told, what does Philip do? He preached Christ to them. I, I love the fact that, that Philip simply preached Christ. You know, that's a message that you can all preach. Like again, Philip has no Bible training, theological, seminary, uh, developing. Like he's not a polished public speaker. Again, we don't have anything recorded of him saying. Philip's just a designated doer. He's the usher. He's the guy that recognizes the worship team doesn't have a bass player, so he's like just learning how to play bass. On the side, he's a mechanic. He's just a normal guy doing normal things, ordinary things. He's a doer. But that being said, when thrown into a different dynamic, Philip could fall back on something important. Well, I could talk about Jesus because I know him. Like he, did, like he didn't preach like some theology that wasn't like going in with apologetics. It wasn't like we're going to you know, do some really crazy. No, he just talked about someone he knew, a person. He doesn't come to town. He's not preaching to the Samaritans some religious code, some 12 steps. No. Philip just goes and he tells them about the person that changed his life forever. That would, should be easy to do. Maybe I was lost and Jesus found me. And man, I'm rough, trust me. But man, he's changed my life. And I'm not always perfect, but he is. And he's so gracious and loving. Philip just talked about Jesus, someone he loved. He told them about the Lord, who he was, who he is, what he had done. And Luke continues by telling us that the multitudes here, they heeded what Philip was saying. Hearing and seeing the miracles manifesting from his life. Some of the examples of this is, is unclean spirits would cry out with a loud voice and come out of many who were possessed. People who were paralyzed and lame were being healed. Pretty incredible stuff. Like, don't overlook the, the, the significance here of, of a very subtle coupling. We're told that it was what they were hearing and seeing. And, and that order isn't an accident. Like this spiritual awakening taking place among the Samaritans, it occurred how? Well, first, they were hearing a message, and then they were noticing that the message being articulated by this man, it was coming from a man in whom the power of God was being practically demonstrated through these, like, these miracles. This man sang the stuff about Jesus, but I'm seeing power come from his life, which is adding more credibility to the things that he sang. Yeah, as a preacher, Philip did more than just tell the Samaritans about Jesus. His life demonstrated a power that could be seen. Like, in a profound way, Philip's life validated his message. And his message was consistent with the life that he lived. Philip preached Christ. And he didn't do it from just an intellectual basis. He preached Christ from the experiential. He spoke of a Christ that he knew and a Christ that was transforming him and working through him. I, I should ask, what makes your life any different from the unbelieving world around you? Is there a difference? Like, do people see something different in you? The joy of the Lord? A peace that can only be described as otherworldly? Do you demonstrate, day in and day out, in normal interactions, the grace of God and the love of the Father? Are you a conduit of those things? When people encounter you, do they get a taste of the Lord? But consider, if people were only reaching conclusions about Jesus by looking at your life, what conclusions about Jesus would they reach? I've mentioned this before, but this is what so many get wrong when it comes to witnessing. Witnessing. Like when, you, when I say witnessing, what do you immediately think about? You think about guys with black slacks and skinny ties riding bicycles through your neighborhood. You, know, the, you think of the guys that are going door by door where you yell out, bring the kids in! Turn off the lights! You know, you don't. The witnesses. 
You think of witnessing in that context of like of something you're going out and doing, something you're sharing, something you're saying, like some type of activity. Understand, though, that evangelism, witnessing, it's not really an activity that you do. Like Like you are a witness or you're not. Like I've either encountered something, seen something, been a part of something, or I haven't. Like witnessing is more of just a natural manifestation that should always be happening. Have you ever run into a person? Ever run into a person? This happened to me at like McDonald's. Where I'm in the drive-thru trying to get a McRib. Delicious. Jesus and the McRib. Two things that will change your life. And I'm talking to the lady on the other side of the counter. You know, through the, I'm talking through the drive-thru line. The speaker. And you could hear something in her voice. There was a happiness, a joy. Just there was something about that lady. Like, man, you're working at McDonald's, but you're happy. And I finally get to the window, and I'm there. And there's not, there's not like a big line or anything, so I'm not. And I'm just, I'm, I start talking to this lady. I mean, you're, you're, you seem like you're full of joy. Oh, she's like, I am. I was like, I can't help but ask. You follow Jesus, don't you? She says, I sure do. I'm filled with the Spirit. Have you run into people where you're like, man, they don't even have to say anything for me to know. That there's something about the countenance, something about their demeanor. That's witnessing. Like you are a witness. Sometimes you do witnessing, but you are a witness. You have a light that should just shine forth naturally. In his book, The Work of the Pastor, uh, William Still, he wrote the following. I like it. He says, my whole view of, Christian, of the Christian's responsibility for primary evangelism is founded upon the belief that the greatest even, evangelic and pastoral agency in the world is the Holy Spirit dwelling naturally in God's children so that Christ shines, shines out of them all the time. We have to let our light shine. Not hide it, certainly not flash it, which draws attention to ourself. ourselves. Let it beam, let its beam blaze out like a lighthouse, believing that Jesus Christ is witnessing through us in and to the world. Since Saul had initiated this great persecution in Jerusalem, Philip, I mean, he finds himself in Samaria, and he's the central figure of something amazing. Uh, Really, historically, this would be the second kind of great awakening. You're the first one on the day of Pentecost, this first initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But now in Samaria, you had this this new movement of God. You know, Jesus did say to go to Jerusalem, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, and then from Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. These are the natural progressions. And Philip is the, the, the tip of the spear. I mean, he's gone into this this forbidden area with the gospel of Jesus. Through events not of his own making, Philip the deacon becomes Philip the preacher. He's called, he's commissioned, and then he reaps an incredible harvest. The entire city is filled with joy because of the work and the influence and the impact of this one man. I mean, to say that this Samaritan church was blowing up would have been an understatement. I mean, Philip the deacon, now Philip the preacher, I mean, he's pastoring, leading a church that is radically changing the city. Attendance is bursting at the seams. I mean, it's the hottest place to be on a Sunday morning. Attendance and conversion rates are through the roof. This church was new. It was fresh. It was trendy. Philip is in the spotlight, man. He's the pastor of a megachurch. This church is rocking and rolling. Philip's ministry has never been better. When, look at verse 26 of chapter 8. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. (laughs) Talk about like a wicked curve to the story. Like God abruptly interrupts this season of a vibrant ministry by sending an angel to Philip with very specific instructions. You're going to have to leave Samaria. I need you to leave Samaria. Immediately leave Samaria. And if that weren't enough, notice the particulars of kind of his new marching orders. The destination 
wouldn't be like the populated cities of Jerusalem or let's say even Gaza. Instead, his destination, you need to leave Samaria, leave this work, leave this church, leave what's happening right here, and I need you to go to the road between the two. (laughs) This is such a bizarre directive that Luke even kind of goes out of his way in in recording this to to point out that, that this wasn't just a trek of road. This was a trek of road through the desert. Let's be real, these instructions probably didn't make any sense, right? Like, I mean, why would God remove Philip, who's in the midst of this incredible work, and send him to a place that was literally unpopulated? (laughs) Philip's like, I got two things going for me, man. I'm a good doer. Like, I like serving people. And apparently, I've got an act for preaching Jesus. And so God sends him to the place where there is no one to serve or preach anything to. How bizarre. Like, this is the last place you would send a, a gifted preacher. Now, knowing that his destination was to simply head south along the road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Again, look at verse 27. We're told what happens. Philip, he arose, and he went. Like, this man, he just abruptly leaves. Like, seemingly unannounced. Never had a, a church staff meeting to let them know of his intentions. He just leaves disappears got his instructions he goes he goes back to jerusalem doesn't see anyone doesn't say hello that's not his destination he just goes through the city to get on this lonely trek of desert highway going down to gaza (laughs) look back at the story and behold a man of ethiopia a eunuch of great authority under candace the queen of the ethiopians who had charge of all of her treasury and had come to jerusalem to worship was returning And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, in order to make sense of why God would send Philip into the desert, we kind of have to just very briefly develop a profile of this man, this new character. Luke tells us he's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. He has great authority. He's serving as some type of treasury secretary under Candace, which was a title, Queen of the Ethiopians. What this tells is just in a flyby. Is, I mean, the man's wealthy, he's powerful, he's influential, he's a servant of the queen. Luke also tells us that this Ethiopian had come to Jerusalem for a reason. He'd come to worship. Now he's returning home. While he traveled some 200 miles from Ethiopia with the desire to worship the God of Israel, I... I I think it's safe to say, and we can make an assumption, that his experience in Jerusalem at the temple probably hadn't been a real positive one. For starters, even though there's some interesting theories about Jewish ancestry in Ethiopia and and black Jews and whatnot, he is of African descent. So on the surface, probably the the furthest he can get into the temple, so he travels 200 miles to worship God, the furthest in he can get It's probably just the outer court of the Gentiles, which Jesus on two occasions has called a den of thieves, right? Hardly a very worshipful environment. Commercial. Beyond that, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it's likely that he would not have been allowed into the temple at all because he was a eunuch. The law of God states very clearly that he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So this man travels 200 miles. At best, he gets into the outer courtyard, and he's like, this is a joke. At worst, he gets there, and they're like, yeah, you can't come in at all. That God's law says you're kind of damned. Like, you're separated. You're out. Either way, the man's returning, we're told. Luke's setting up the scene. He's sitting in his chariot, and we're told that he's reading Isaiah the prophet. So this Ethiopian regardless of whatever his experiences had or hadn't been at the temple, he is able to use his status and incredible wealth to procure a priceless copy of Isaiah the prophet. I think we can can assume that this Ethiopian, he was a nobleman on an even nobler quest. This man is searching for the truth. The world, all that the world had offered him, had left him empty, Wealth had never satisfied religion, what it had promised, left him wanting. 
Like this man desires a real life-altering encounter with God. As he's making his way back to Ethiopia, there are two things going for this man that kind of set the stage. One, he's digging into God's Word. You can't go wrong. If you're a seeker, open up the Bible and seek. Secondly, while he needed someone to help him make sense of the things that he was reading. So he's reading Isaiah, which is kind of difficult. He doesn't have a lot of context. It's a good place to start, but he needs someone to to teach him, to explain to him, to unpack what's going on, which is good. Because God happens to be one step ahead of the Ethiopian. Verse 29. Then the Spirit says to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. (laughs) Don't forget, Philip is walking this lonely, dusty desert road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. When you can imagine this chariot with the entire entourage comes speeding by him. Like, I mean, how else would he have even noticed the chariot? Then as, as Philip is kind of standing there thinking, that's weird. And, and imagine like you're walking a lonely Texas road somewhere west Texas. You're by yourself. You don't see a car for miles. And way in the distance, you see like, you can't really make sense of it, but it's coming and it blows past you. And it's like 12 Escalades all blacked out windows. You would be like, what was that, right? I mean, you'd be thinking it through. It's the president or it's the cartel. Who knows? But Luke says, as this is happening, that the Spirit tells Philip, gives him a new instruction. Leave Samaria, go to this desert road. New instruction, go near and overtake the chariot. Philip, go catch the chariot. So, Philip ran to him. And when he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, he said, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. (laughs) you got to pause for a minute. So Philip's been given a very specific instruction. Go near, catch the chariot. There's been no other instruction. So in your mind, as you're playing out the role, Philip takes off running. He hikes up his long robes. I mean, he's, I mean, he's going. And he catches the chariot. And he's running. Because that's the only the instruction. Catch the chariot. Wasn't given instructions what to do when you catch the chariot. Just catch the chariot. So here's Philip running. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, you're driving, and, and you get that weird sensation that someone's looking at you? And that you think it's the person next to you and the other car? but you don't want to look, you don't want to make eye contact, and you're really, really worried you were picking your nose at some point in the process because now that's embarrassing, and like we're going to have to make eye contact. So, so Philip's running, and again, this Ethiopian's got to be like, there's a Jewish guy running next to us in the desert. Can you speed up? So they speed up. Philip speeds up. He's like, Ethiopian pulls down the curtain, kind of like, this is weird, Right? And, and, and he keeps running. And at some point, <laughs> Philip, if I were to open to a book of the Bible and just started reading, how long would it take you to recognize where I was reading from? A chapter? Maybe two? Philip's running next to the chariot long enough to recognize that the man's reading the prophet Isaiah. 30 minutes? I mean, Philip's in shape. i got to give him credit. And at some point, Philip's like, hey, hey, I, I know you know I'm here. You got any idea what you're reading? And they have a conversation. Guy rolls down the window. They start yelling out. I have no idea. How can I unless there's someone that I've been praying that God would provide someone. And Philip's like, Seems like I'm a good candidate, right? And, it's, and then notice, look at it. And then he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So all of this has been happening outside of the chariot. So at some point, the Ethiopian's like, slow down. Jump on in. Verse 32, in the place in the scripture where he was reading was, and this is Isaiah 53, that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. 
So he opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I I ask you, or or literally I'm begging of you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Great question. So Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Christ Jesus to him. Now when they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the man commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he was baptized. He'll talk about the marvelously ordinary life. While Philip only saw a lonely desert road stretching from Jerusalem to Gaza, God knew There would be a man, a seeker, a man from Ethiopia, traveling this very road at this very moment in desperate need of someone to share the gospel with him from the passage he happened to be reading in Isaiah 53. Unbeknownst to Philip, God had another harvest that was primed for the reaping. Though many in the same position would have maybe been hesitant. You know, if you're Philip and you're in Samaria and you get this Go, leave. You're like, I, but I'm being successful, right? Like, you might be hesitant. Like, I got to really think this through. Obedience would take him from this amazing work. It would take him from a position of, of security to uncertainty. From a, a sure thing to a who knows. From a hotbed of success to a desert. But man, Philip heard the instruction and he didn't hesitate. He acted immediately. You know, this third movement to Philip's marvelously ordinary life, it was only possible because he was willing to obey God's word. God spoke, he took it for real, and he obeyed. Like, don't overlook the fact that Philip was really only given one word, go. And he went. Philip didn't need an explanation, didn't need a marathon prayer sesh, didn't ask God for the details. Go. That's all Philip needed. Those were his marching orders. You see, Philip, to live the marvelously ordinary life, he trusted God. And he lived in complete and absolute surrender. But I should add that it's evident when you look at Philip that there was a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Like, notice this entire story begins with God giving Philip a command that contained a specific destination. What did Philip do? He went to the road. He traveled south as he was told. He waited God to provide further instructions. Then, as a result of his obedience, to be exactly where God wanted him to be, he seized the chariot, and the Spirit spoke to him, broke the silence. Philip catched the chariot. And once again, Philip obeys the Lord. Simple faith. He runs up. He catches the chariot. He's running alongside of it, waiting for further instruction. Obedient. And then finally, God's purpose started to come into view. Way after the fact. He hears the man reading from Isaiah the prophet. He's like, oh Lord, this is why I'm here. You see, if Philip hadn't been sensitive to the Spirit, if he hadn't been obedient, then the exchange that changed this man's life forever would have never happened. You see, Philip understood, and this is important, Philip understood that the best place for him to be was in the will of God. Whatever that happened to be or look like. But he also realized that the only way that he could be in the will of God was to be obedient to God's word and sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're like me, the obvious question that kind of jumps off the page is how did Philip, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I mean, Luke says, look at it again. The Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Like, how is Philip certain that this was actually God's voice speaking to him? Well, that's a study in, you know, for its own self. But I will say this. It could have been audible. I mean, you're in the desert. You can hear the still, small voice. Not a lot of noise around you. While unlikely that it was an audible directive, I'm convinced that the answer of of being sensitive, hearing the Spirit, it really lies in three things. Four. 
One, in order to hear the Holy Spirit, a person must be first filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's a given. And then two, and this is a more complicated. I think a person has to be, like they have to possess a desire to listen. And then thirdly, I think that it's important to develop a familiarity with his voice. But then at the end, you have to have the boldness, the faith to act upon a particular impression. You must be filled with the Spirit. You have to want to listen. You have to be familiar with His voice. And then you have to act, which is interesting because the only way that you know that it was God's voice is to act. And then when you see His hand, you recognize the voice. I've I've tried to adopt a little bit of this in my own life, just this kind of radical response to weird impressions. I was working on a Bible study. This was a couple years ago. It was, it was like 1 o'clock in the morning. And in the middle of working on my Bible study, I had this random thought, bizarre, wasn't related to anything, about a friend of mine I hadn't spoken to in like 10 years that lives in California. I'm like, well, it's 1 o'clock here. It's subtract three hours. I shot him a text message, just out of the blue, felt like the Lord wanted me to. And I was like, all right, Lord, well, what do you want me to say? Just says, man, I just want you to know Jesus loves you and he's proud of you. And immediately my phone rang. An hour before that, he had gotten news that his grandfather had passed away. I hadn't talked to this guy in 10 years. And it's like, wow, what? That was, wait, that was God's voice. I heard, and I'm so glad I acted because when I acted, I saw the hand. So that means, wait a second. You know, the more you do that, the more you begin to pick up on the voice, the more you begin to recognize it. Again, it's a marvelous thing, but the more you do it, the more ordinary it becomes. I'm amazed at really a central idea that this story illustrates. Few people discuss it, but you know, when you look at this story and you kind of take a step back, you know, there's no doubt that God evaluates ministry opportunities, and that God determines ministry success. He actually determines a successful, productive, marvelous, ordinary life, much different than we do, doesn't he? God sends Philip to a harvest in Samaria, prime for the reaping. Thousands of converts. But then he turns around and he sends the same man to a deserted road for the exact same reason. There was a a massive harvest, the Ethiopian. Which means that like God evaluates things differently, doesn't he? You see, from God's perspective, one opportunity was not any greater than the other. It wasn't the number of conversions, it was just obedience to the one that God had sent you to. See, God uses the same man for both occasions, and I think God does that on purpose. That he uses Philip for this revival in Samaria, and then he moves him to a deserted road because God wants you to know that one person matters. That one matters. Mass evangelism in Samaria, I'm sure it brought God glory, but it's evident that individual evangelism was just important. Conversion numbers don't always equate to the type of ministry success that God cares about. The Ethiopian is a seeker. He's seeking God. He's desperate. The world ripped him off. Religion left him empty. But God didn't stand idly by, did he? talk about leaving the 99 to go after the one this is philip leaving samaria for what for one why because god loved the ethiopian he sends philip you know in the book of acts this idea of god's heart for one lost soul it's 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 really interesting it's on display over and over and over again like that god always responds to a genuine seeker by doing what by sending one of his servants to preach Jesus. The Apostle Peter was sent by God where? To the house of Cornelius, one man in his family. Paul would would take the gospel, yes, to a new continent, but why? One man, the man of Macedonia, who I think was the Philippian jailer. In this instance, Philip is is sent, taken from Samaria, sent to a desert, what? For one. 
Jesus is dying to save the world of sin, and he had time for that one thief that needed to be saved. Who is Jesus reaching you to send? To reach out to, to save, to minister to, to preach Jesus. Yeah, sometimes, and, and, and again, I get it, you can become overwhelmed by kind of the entirety of the lost world around us, so much so that we actually lose sight of the one lost soul in front of us. Maybe you haven't been sent to save the world. Maybe you've just been sent to save your neighbor or that one coworker. <laughs> I'll be bold to say that person right now. That person on your mind, and everyone has them. That one person. Maybe Jesus has sent you to that one person. So like Philip, will you go? And it might take work. Like you might be running next to that chariot for a while. But will you go? Well, there's one final movement to Philip's marvelously ordinary life. And really, it's much different than anything we've seen at this point. Verse 39. Now when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. So that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Astos, and passing through, he preached in all of the cities till he came to Caesarea. <laughs> According to Luke's account, as soon as the Ethiopian emerges from the water after being baptized, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. This is one of the most strangest, bizarre little tidbits of information in the entire Bible. In fact, the Greek word here, caught away, is harpazo which means to snatch out. In the Latin, we translate harpazo into raptura, which is where we get the English word raptured. Apparently, God's practicing his rapture technique on Philip just way earlier. He comes out of the water, and the eunuch sees him no more. Philip is snatched away, which we can assume means that his, his physical body was snatched away and teleported from one location to another. He leaves one place, no one sees him, he pops up in another. Weird. I will say this. Christian, never underestimate the supernatural things that will happen and the marvelously ordinary life. Story closes. Ethiopian, he goes away, he's rejoicing. Philip, he finds himself in a town north of Gaza. He works his way up the Mediterranean coast. He's preaching in all the cities. He finally settles in the northern seaport of Caesarea. At this point in the narrative of the book of Acts, Luke shifts things away from Philip. In fact, the next chapter we'll get into, we'll get back to that Saul character because he needs to have a, a Jesus moment, you might say. But you know, this isn't the last time we see Philip. In Acts chapter 21, verse 8, this is what Luke writes. And you don't have to turn there, I can read it for you. We read that on the next day, we, who were Paul's companions, departed, and we came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, so that's a reference back to Acts 6, and we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. It, it seems that Philip, after getting raptured, Settles in Caesarea. Not a bad place to settle. Right on the coast. It's beautiful. And what does he do? Well, he does what he's always done. Keeps serving Jesus. Philip the church member became a deacon. Philip the deacon became a preacher. Philip the preacher became an evangelist. And now he just goes back to being a simple Christian. Likely, we can assume, he finds a job. Plants a church. He gets married. No mention of a woman before this point. So he gets married. He has four daughters who grow up to love Jesus and who have a ministry of their own. They're these prophetesses. Now, I find it so interesting that where God eventually leads Philip and his marvelously ordinary life, again, he goes from being a simple servant to a deacon in Jerusalem, a deacon to a preacher in Samaria, a preacher to an evangelist on the road to Gaza. But in the end, from the encounter with the Ethiopian to Caesarea, he settles down. Philip, who is all of those things, becomes what? A husband and a father. 
Not only is God's hand evident, clear, pronounced on every step along his journey, but in the end, what is Philip's lasting legacy? Like, what's the thing he's known for by the end? His children, his family, not his ministry. Not the time in Samaria, not the Ethiopian, his family. While the marvelously ordinary life of Philip is a life that's offered to us all, his story does challenge us in some real real ways. Like, in order to live such a life, are you willing to serve? Not because you have to, but because it's just a natural response to God's grace. Are you waiting for a position or a title? No. Beyond that, if a difficult situation were to arise, I mean, you know, like a pandemic, (laughs) are you willing to look for God to provide opportunities? That opposition could be opportunities? And, And beyond that, I mean, Philip's life, I mean, to live it, if God says go, Are you willing to obey? Like, even if the instruction doesn't make any sense? Pastoring a church in Winder? Beyond that, how far are you willing to go when God puts it on your heart, that one, that one lost soul? That one lost soul that comes across your path, how far are you willing to go? Do you possess the same type of sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading? God, this is crazy, but I'm doing it. In the end, God's supernatural hand was all over Philip's life. It was in every part of his journey, a journey that was marvelous. And yet Philip was just an ordinary guy. Yes, he was one of the first deacons, He was the tip of the spear to initiate an awakening in Samaria. He was central to an Ethiopian coming to know the Lord, which, by the way, that Ethiopian takes the gospel back to Africa. But when it was all said and done, Philip was a godly husband and father. What a life. What a journey. How exciting. The point? Christian is that the marvelously ordinary life that we see of Philip is the same life that God has for you. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.